Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for Minnesota Public Radio, and I watch a fair amount of TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. We're back today with a special episode to wrap up some loose ends from the season and talk to Brad and Todd Mann, who played the silent and dapper Kitchen Brothers. So one of the biggest questions that we were left with after this season of Fargo was, do the Kitchen Brothers speak? So we're talking with Brad and Todd Mann, who played Gail and Wayne Kitchen, to get the scoop on the second season and what it was like playing Mike Milligan's Enforcers. Todd, Brad, thank you for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. And yes, we do speak. (laughs) Yes, we're not going to do this interview in character. (laughs) It'll be a boring interview. (laughs) Yeah, quick and quiet. Uh, Well, let's just start with how did you two get the Kitchen Brothers role? Well, what it was is uh, it started off with an audition uh, to go on tape in Vancouver. And the funny thing was it was about five pages of dialogue, none of which we spoke. (laughs) And so it was was all purely reactionary. This is Todd just chiming in. Yeah, and so this is Brad talking, by the way. Um, so it's funny because every audition we've ever done, obviously you have lines. And so this was the first audition we've ever done that there was no lines. And so rather than go into the audition room and just wing it, which is what we saw most of the other actors doing, is we decided to memorize all the other people's lines. And then we went in and we had specific points where we reacted and we basically mapped out a dialogue in the form of actions. And so when we were able to go in and do it uh, for casting, uh, we nailed it in one tape and one on tape audition and bam, we got the part. Can you tell us a little more about the world of on-screen acting for twins? You've played multiple roles as twins. Are there a lot of casting calls for twins? Uh, This is Todd speaking. Uh, Well, yes and no. When we first started out, we were actually uh, chased down by the twin agency in Vancouver, which I know generally you don't do. You don't try to take actors from other agencies. But I guess at the time we were the we were booking a lot of twin parts. So it kind of makes you look bad if you're the twin agency and the only twins that are booking roles aren't your agency. But that being said, a lot of the roles we went in and if you check our IMDb and a lot of the roles we went in and worked with together, a lot of them weren't actually even cast for twins. It was a really interesting thing that our agent learned to do. We're taking double parts and single parts and turning them into double parts. Yeah. And this is Brad. So sometimes there'd be just brothers. We turn them into twins. They'd be friends turned into twins. We even did a commercial that was one guy hitting on a girl in the commercial. We went in, split up the lines, and then they cast both of us. And then we flew out to Toronto to do the commercial. That's amazing. So just to clarify, the twin agency is an agency specifically representing sets of twins in the acting business? That's right. So if people are looking for twins, they'll just go there. But I mean, we're known enough in Vancouver where the casting directors know that we're not in that agency, so they'll come look for us specifically through our agent. Okay, so did you both decide to go into acting together then at the same time back when you first decided to choose this as a career? I would probably say it was, this is Todd speaking, this is probably the same moment, I think. We both decided that we want to go into film and television. Yeah, because we um, we were both kind of a little little shy. This is Brad. Uh, a little shy in high school. And so where we both found our legs were kind of on the theater stage. And so we did a lot of theater through high school. And then in our final year, we had the um, satisfaction of doing a pantomime. So we were uh, some of the main villains in this big theater production. 
which sat about 300 people. In our small town, that was like a big deal at the time. But so at the end of opening night, after doing all these lines and being these amazing characters, we come out on stage for the curtain call. And as we come out, just the, the audience vibe and loudness just got so loud that we just kind of looked at each other, our hearts dropped, and we realized that after having this kind of effect on this many people, we just both wanted to entertain for a living. We grew up in a small town, Summerland, BC, which is in the Okanagan Valley. And growing up there, there was no famous people that came out of our town. You know, there's no big names. They don't teach you about film and television. So we wanted to act, but we had no idea how incredibly hard it is to be successful in this industry. And so when we moved to the West Coast, we just had this drive to want to do it and this passion to do it without worrying about all the competition we have and all the work it takes to do it. Yeah. And so we kind of jumped in head first, which I think was an advantage to us in the beginning and got us a lot of work before we realized how much work it, work it actually takes. So I have to ask, Todd, you played Wayne, who died. Yeah. And yeah. Brad, spoiler. you played... Spoiler. <laughs> uh, Gail, every... who lives. Yeah, Brad, you played Gail, who lives. So how did you decide which one of you got to play which character? Uh, well, <laughs> funny enough, is usually... At first, when we first started out, they would have us when we didn't have enough confidence. This is Todd speaking, Wayne Kitchen. When we first started out, the, the casting directors didn't really know how to have two people in the audition room at the same time. So it sort of developed over the years where we would end up bringing each other into the room, read together, start making different choices. Originally, they had us would both read both characters and switch back and forth. Originally, we eventually we found out that just picking one character works better. So that's what they eventually got us to do. So for this role, the characters' names were originally Cole and Gail Kitchen. And for this particular one, since we didn't know when we auditioned that one would live longer than the other, uh, this being Todd, I got to pick first. And I was like, well, cool. I want to be Cole. Yeah, I <laughs> let him pick first. Yeah, <laughs> picked so his that's, name first. that's such a cool name. And then as soon as we got cast, I got, realized my name got changed to Wayne. And, so, <laughs> and Wayne didn't make it. And yeah. Wayne didn't make it. So. Originally, we both thought that we were only going to make it about halfway through the season. And it wasn't until the contracts were being made that they were like, okay, by the way, Todd, you're uh, you're going to be in five episodes and Brad, you're going to be in 10. Yeah. And we kind of looked at each other and was like, wow. I try not to get too excited. <laughs> what was it like working with Bokeem? I mean, so you have the two silent characters paired with the most talkative character on the show. This is Brad, which is ironic because when the cameras weren't rolling, uh, we chatted all the time and Bokeem hardly said a word. And so it was funny to see the reversal once the camera was rolling. Um, but that was one of the things that I think excited both of us about these characters the most is because they played so well off each other with Bokeem being the chatterbox and saying all the lines and the Kitchen Brothers being very deliberate. And it's not that they didn't speak because you can see them whispering and you can see them chatting. It's that they they didn't have anything to say to people while they're working is because their job was to be the intimidating enforcers that were to just kill when they need to kill. Yeah. And this is Todd speaking is we were there specifically so that, so that Bokeem, AKA Mike Milligan had free reign to say whatever you want and be completely relaxed and knowing that there's two badass Kansas city enforcers right behind him in case anything, just waiting for something to go wrong. Yep. So it actually, in essence, I, I really enjoyed that it gave him permission to talk even more and be even funnier and still be just as intimidating as a result. So we actually had a question about one specific line that we believe is the only line that we heard from either of the Kitchen Brothers, <laughs> the scene where the Undertaker arrives and someone says to Mike Milligan, 
the Undertaker's here. And we both thought, wait a second, the only person in the room there is Gail. Is that, in fact, your voice? Yeah, this is Brad. Yeah, that was my voice. And I was even thinking about that on the day. I'm like, I'm wondering if anyone is going to be able to piece that together. It'll probably be exactly that. They'll be like, someone spoke. And be like, and they're the only, he's the only other person in the room. So it has to be Gail. Because earlier in episode five, there was actually a line of dialogue that Gail also spoke, which was kind of a racist joke um, that he said to the commissioner. I think it was the commissioner, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, right at the top of the whole big fight scene that Wayne ends up dying. But they cut it out. And I think they did that just because maybe it was a little bit too risque of a comment or maybe they really enjoyed the fact that everyone was just kind of waiting for Gail or Wayne to talk. And you might want to check back, and when you, this is Todd speaking, when you check back and see the moment of my death right before I die, I actually do say something. What? Right before he puts the knife in the side of my throat. So you just go back and watch that. Yeah, you watch says, right uh, after that moment. Yeah, he says weak. Yeah, he says weak. Just basically oh. implying to what's what about the, uh, the Gerhardt family and yeah. their foul attempt at trying to t- take us down. Yeah, and so this is Brad, but, um, and so maybe that would just make my character want to talk even less because as soon as Wayne said one word, he died. <laughs> so true. So playing these silent characters, I mean, your wardrobe spoke volumes, like your leisure suits and your leather coats. I mean, what was it like stepping back into the 70s with the wardrobe and the music and all that? Uh, this is Todd speaking. Well, when we did the first wardrobe fitting... It was incredible because we're really curious to see where they were going to go with these outfits. And when we saw these outfits that they wanted us to put on, we knew there was a real fine line between making these characters iconic to making them silly. So we knew that we just had to own the uniforms, own the outfits. I I remember when we were doing the fitting, the the wardrobe department gave us a set of hats. They had fedoras and they had the bowler caps that you see in the show and a couple other hats. And and they even mentioned on the day saying, now Noah, which is, of course, the creator, genius showrunner of of season one and season two. He, uh, she mentioned that he really liked the bowler hats. So we actually made an effort to make all the other hats look bad <laughs> so that to make sure that he got what he wanted because we knew that we'd have to bring it when it came to set and we knew that the audience would believe it a lot more if there's two people going all the way than just one. Yeah, and this is Brad. So when we got on the set and we got to try on the outfits for the first time, the wardrobe has a lot to do with how you develop a character as well because you slip into that uniform every day on set. And so the moment that we tried them on, we were like, these are the Kitchen Brothers and we're going to have so much fun playing these characters. Yeah. And that's when we got to go into the props truck and pick our weapons. And that's when we decided originally they were going to have us with a whole bunch of different weapons. And we decided we just wanted just the shotguns. Yeah. That's all we needed. Yeah. And in actuality, uh, um, since Todd is ambidextrous, we decided to make him left-handed and I was right-handed so he could play off that. And so there was all these little decisions we got to make just in that first phase of the pre-production. Yeah. Like growing the beards originally, I think he wanted us to even clean shaven when we went on set, but we had grown beards for two months. So we really wanted to fit that into something as well. And of course, to dress up in the 70s, as you were asking as well, was just inc- incredible to dress up in that stage, but also because everything's so flashy from being from Kansas City. And then, of course, to be arguably some of the flashiest dressed characters in the show just, you know, just made it so much more fun to play. And and they were nice enough at the end to actually gift us a set of those outfits. Yeah, so we got Halloween costumes for life. 
So now that the season has ended, we're sort of thinking back and wondering what happened to the characters. And some of the characters we we saw a conclusion for. We see what uh, Mike Milligan's next step is, but we don't find out what happens to Gale after the season ends. Do you two have a theory or any sort of inside information about what happened to Gale after the season ended? Uh, no inside information. Um, I guess we got to leave that up to the creator, Noah Hawley. Um, but we had kind of an idea or hope that uh, if you guys have watched the first season, um, Gail Kitchen perhaps could change his name to Lauren Malvo, and then 25 years later becomes a mysterious bounty hunter that you know nothing about. Oh, so Lauren Malvo is a grieving twin. That's what you're saying? Maybe. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a possibility, though, you know, I'd like to think that Gail lives to be very old. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't quite work for Malvo. If uh, FX or Fox was ever interested in doing an origin of the Kitchen Brothers, we'd be all over that. <laughs> I would definitely watch that. Did you guys have a favorite time from being on set? I mean, it sounds like you had a ton of fun picking out the costumes and picking out your shotguns. Like, what was your favorite moment during filming? Actually, and uh, actually, now that I come to think of it, I think actually the coolest part on set that my brother might agree with me too, this is Todd speaking, is that is the scene that we did with Ted Danson and Bokeem were on the side of the road and we flipping the birds Yeah, because nobody knew that we were actually going to put up our middle fingers until yeah. the first time the camera started rolling. We actually kept that to ourselves because in the script it says, uh, he asked the question, it says the Kitchen Brothers hold up two fingers. Yeah. And we we're thinking to ourselves, okay, so originally maybe, because we hadn't talked to Noah about this, we, wasn't, we weren't sure if he just wanted us to just put up two fingers each. And, and we were thinking to ourselves saying, we knew these characters were really defiant and hated the law. And we thought it'd be really cool, interesting to do what you saw on screen yeah. where we can give him the bird, but we never told anybody. This yeah. is the funniest so part. So we, we actually made that decision. And yeah. then as soon as we were done filming, we did the, um, uh, we filmed the rehearsal. And as soon as we put up the finger, everybody laughed. Oh. And after we finished shooting, Noah even came up to us after and was like, thank you guys very much for doing your research. He says that played out so well. Well, you were both quietly fantastic and some of our favorite of the whole season. So thank you so much for giving us the scoop um, and telling us all about how it all came together. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And when they make the origin of the Kitchen Brothers, we'll, we'll talk to you first. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk again. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, you guys. We're still a little bit in Fargo withdrawal, but there were so many questions we were left with after the finale and loose ends that people kept bringing up on Twitter. We thought we'd get back together and just break down some of the questions that people still had. And the big one. Seriously, did Hansi become Tripoli from season one? Is that actually what we're meant to believe? The answer is... Yes, he is. It's not just a theory. (laughs) We had a lot of people being like, oh, yeah, nice try, nice catch. Not what happened, but it is... Noah Hawley even confirmed it. And I thought it was interesting. He said that they didn't think of that twist until halfway through writing the second season. Uh, And he did it because he wanted Hansi to come out a winner. And does he ever? Well, at least for the next, what, 25, 30 years or so? (laughs) Eventually, Malvo takes out Hansi slash Tripoli. But Hansi does get to be a winner at the end of season two. And that's what Holly was going for. The person we thought, you know, Peggy was the one who really wanted to become reborn and be a a brand new me. But it was Hansi who became a brand new me in this season. A very, very brand new me. Yes, they look nothing alike. 
but yes, it is him. Talk about self-actualization. Another interesting thing that people were asking about was, was Lauren Malvo in season two? Did we see a young version of Billy Bob? Uh, There's this weird exchange in season one where Lou, the older Lou, describes what happened in Sioux Falls to Malvo when he's sitting at the diner. And in their exchange, it is a little bit ambiguous about whether or not Malvo was in Sioux Falls. And of course, can anything Malvo says be trusted? So conceivably, Malvo could have lied and was playing dumb. He's like, I've been to Sioux City. But it seems like a stretch. We certainly don't have any evidence to suggest that Malvo showed up in any form, even with another face, in season two. Yeah, so I think no on Malvo in Sioux Falls. Another question people had are, what's going to happen to Peggy? Her storyline does kind of end in in the trooper car, and we're not sure what's going to happen to her, what charges she will face. If you think about it, they still don't know what happened to Rye's body. That's true. And this is before the era of DNA testing, so it could prove challenging to track him down, depending on just how thoroughly Ed cleaned. But chances are, given how certain those cops seem that Rye was taken out by Ed and Peggy, they're going to find a way to demonstrate that, or Peggy might outright confess it at this point. I don't know. And with Ed dead, it would be pretty easy to pin the whole murder, including the car incident, on Ed, poor dead Ed. But I think what they could really get Peggy for is they did kidnap Dodd. I mean, as unpleasant and awful as Dodd is, they did tie him up, put him in the back of the car, and take him across state lines. So that would be kidnapping, and it would be federal because it's state lines, right? Yeah, and then all sorts of hiding information from the police, all sorts of you know not sharing what they knew, not cooperating with an investigation. There are any number of charges Peggy could be facing. And I don't know if there's really any information that she could share that might buy her a plea bargain at this point. I don't. I think she's only got the pity card at this point. But if she really does want to get to that California prison, she's going to have to go federal. She's, if she gets that view, she wants that, that ocean view from her cell, she can't just wind up in some Minnesota prison. Although there was the Minnesota prison at the time that would have given you a view of the Mississippi River and uh, the bluff in downtown St. Paul. Oh, equally as scenic. That was more of a jail, really. Probably she's not in that jurisdiction. Uh, another question. Is Hansi a Gerhardt? So this is a theory that people have had. All that season, we kind of talked about it, too, if there was any hints that he might be um, this illegitimate Gerhardt son. In the end, I think the answer is no. Uh, the actor who played Hansi, Zahn McLernan, talked about his own imagined backstory for the character, that he grew up on this reservation, he had alcoholic parents. There's no mention of Otto Gerhardt or any other Gerhardt being involved in his lineage. Until Otto adopted him, essentially. Right, until they took him off the street. Um, there was this... Nasty line that uh, Ricky from Buffalo shoots at Mike Milligan in the last episode when he finds Milligan in the Gerhardt's house. And he says, like, oh, are you the kid that Otto had with the maid? That is just a rude, racist remark. I don't think there was any hint that there was an illegitimate Gerhardt son everyone knew about. Ricky. Rude to the end. Yeah, just... Ricky just being Ricky. And not the best time to be uh, shooting off one's mouth. Didn't end well. Uh, another question, people people thought that they were waiting to see Lou get shot because he, uh, in season one, Lou Salverson does have a limp. But in season one, he says that he got it when he interrupted this snowmobile robbery gone wrong, and that's when he was injured. So 
he makes it out of season two with his uh, with his trademark cowboy walk intact. The limp does not come until later. Now I really hope that's season four. The snowmobile <laughs> robbery gone wrong. It could be. So uh, what happened to Charlie, The really the most significant Gerhardt who is left at the end of this very bloody season? We're left to believe he is in prison. Do we know anything else about his fate? No. Uh, Vanity Fair did ask Noah Hawley about this, and I know a lot of people were holding out some hope for... You know, maybe Charlie and Noreen could rekindle their romance. Uh, And about Charlie, uh, Noah Hawley said, he served about four years in prison and got out and is the sole surviving Gerhardt and had to make a life for himself. On a lot of levels, he's left behind as the last man standing of the Gerhardt family. I'm sure he took a long, hard look at himself and the fact that his nature, which was more gentle, was in conflict with his upbringing. So, four years in prison and then off to, to make his own life. Although that does leave the question, what about the Gerhards we never met? We know there was a whole bunch of Gerhards, like Simone had three sisters, Dodd has a wife. We never saw them, but where did they go? Hopefully they ran away as far and as fast <laughs> as they could go. Another group of people who could maybe use a life spring seminar. Charlie's the last surviving man, but there's probably many surviving women. Another speculation, will the third season jump to Rapid City? Ben Schmidt mentioned that city. In season one, we had this, oh, well, at least it's not Sioux Falls. And in season two, Ben Schmidt was like, it's Rapid City all over again. Whatever happened in Rapid City is not what we're going to see in the next season, uh, because that would have had to take place even earlier than 79. And we know that we're traveling to 2010 for season three. And Noah Hawley has said that there were no hints about season three placed in season two unlike was the case between season one and season two we knew there was going to be this massacre we'd heard lou talk about it and when season two was announced we very quickly understood oh now we're going to learn the story of what happened to lou back in the day but apparently season two has given us there are no breadcrumbs left from season two to season three at least not that we're left during the writing and filming process so hold on to that rapid city thought it's not coming next season It could come in a future season. And that's not to say there won't be characters from season two who will show up in season three, who the writing team will decide to pick up on. Maybe Charlie, maybe Noreen, maybe some of our favorites. It's almost impossible to believe there wouldn't be some of our favorites from season one showing up now in season three. So how about those alien symbols? There's still some lingering confusion about the meaning of all those symbols. We did hear Ted Danson's character explained, Hank explained what was going on. He was trying to invent a new language. So we don't believe that the aliens had been directly communicating with Hank, at least as far as he knew. But there's still some confusion about what was going on with all those symbols in Hank's home, in the bar, etc. Right. And so those crazy symbols in the South Dakota bar, if you picked up on them, They are actually cattle brands. They are unique symbols that ranchers used. Um, And so it was a cowboy cattle bar. That's what those were doing up up there. I know they look a lot like Hank's universal language, but they're different. So no, the aliens had not also been in a South Dakota bar. Uh, And all of those symbols ended up being a total red herring and just Hank's attempt at at world peace. It's amazing. It really shows how closely people have been watching this show, how many people notice those symbols in the bar. If you find yourself in South Dakota because you live there or you're road tripping through and you hit maybe one of the most uh, iconic sites there, which is the wall drug, you will see some of those same cattle branding symbols up up near the border of the wall drug. So 
check it out on your next road trip. Yeah, and like I tweeted at the time, we we're talking about those cattle symbols. It could theoretically take things to a whole new level if you credit aliens with the development of uh, the cattle branding symbols. But that's way <laughs> beyond the scope of this little podcast. One other thing I wanted to note that I think is interesting, in interviews with Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons after the fact, uh, they said that even they didn't know how it was going to end, that Noah Hawley lied to them about who was going to make it out alive. So if you were, uh, if you got your who's going to live, who's going to die tally wrong, you weren't alone. Even the actors were in the dark. Yeah, there's some Empire Strikes Back level uh, subterfuge and, uh, and hiding going on here to make sure that even the cast did not know how, uh, how things were going to end. So if they seemed a little nervous about whether they were both going to survive, well, in a sense, they were. Okay, you know I love the crazy theories, most of them not founded in anything, but I just wanted to recap two of my recent crazy theories that I've seen on Twitter. First of all, that Hansi is Ronald Reagan's illegitimate son, uh, based on the fact that this uh, poster said, oh, you know, he, Reagan met Hansi's mother on the set of the movie we see at the beginning of the season, and he said that we just lingered on Hansi too long during Reagan's speeches. Well... <laughs> that's a theory that's an idea so right, so that movie would have been from i mean i guess that the timing would roughly work out yeah i mean it's it's one of those theories that you can just hold on to in your heart but i don't think you're gonna find a lot of of stuff to back it up in the season i like it though that really works out because then of course that would explain how hansi kind of became kind of an orphan Mm-hmm. And that he has the same... Uh... that his facial structure would so readily adapt to kind of a doughy <laughs> white man there you go. There he had, he had that Reagan bone structure in there somewhere deep, uh, deep beneath. Well, that, that's a cool theory. The other one, uh, we end the season with Hansi in need of a new face because half of it has been pretty burned. It's looking pretty grisly. It looks a lot like a certain character we've seen in a lot of Batman movies and TV shows, Two-Face. And what is Two-Face's real name? Harvey Dent. A.K.A. Hansi Dent. I don't know. A little <laughs> Batman connection for you. If we ever get to talk to uh, Noah Hawley, that might be a good question. Because that's, that's definitely like a J.J. Abrams kind of thing to do. Like a real subtle, oh, actually not even all that subtle in this case, Easter egg to drop, a little cross-franchise love. But I don't know if Noah Hawley is quite the uh, sci-fi geek that J.J. Abrams is. Well, then people started drawing other connections like, well, you know, Mike Milligan's kind of a Joker figure and he wears that bright purple suit. He ends up in a cell sort of at the end. His little corporate office looks very cell-like. He's put there by Adam Arkin, like Arkham, like the Batman Sane Asylum. I mean, you can really go down this Batman rabbit hole very, very deep. But uh, just a fun thing that we've been kicking around on Twitter since then. Yeah, someone write like a 5,000-word Tumblr post about this theory. Just elucidate all the details and we'll, we'll tweet it. Just tweet it at us. And also, I hear uh, if you watch uh, season two, right from the very beginning, you put on Dark Side of the Moon. It's crazy the way it matches up. It's really eerie. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so how about some news? Some fun news for Fargo fans. No Holly announced that there will be a soundtrack for the season, which is what everyone's been asking for almost since the first episode. And it will include the original covers that were in the episodes as well. So... We don't have any exact dates on when it will be released, but it's coming in 2016. It's going to be some great music. So what do we know now about season three? 
no, not coming out in 2016. Sorry, folks. They're going to shoot. They need to shoot in the winter and they need to write it before they can shoot it in yep. the winter. <laughs> so it's going to be a little while. Anyone hoping for a dramatic departure and seeing a summer version of Fargo? It's not happening this year. They said they are writing it right now and they hope for it to premiere in 2017. And it's going to be set in the year 2010. So that's four years after the events of season one. And like you were saying earlier, it's not going to be centered on any of the characters that we already know, but they may make some tangential appearances. There are certainly a number of people who I talk to here in Minnesota who are hoping this is going to be a summer season. So they're like, <laughs> the world needs to know that there are times in Minnesota when there's not snow on the ground. But no, Noah Hawley has said, for better and for worse, this is a winter show. So we will be back in uh, the winter at some point. Yep, staying true to the movie, keeping <laughs> those mounds and piles of snow everywhere. We're going to see it in 2017. And we may wander into uh, other neighboring states, maybe Wisconsin. Maybe this is uh, Green Bay's season to make an appearance. We haven't yeah. heard much in the <laughs> Green Bay Mafia, and I'll bet they're formidable. Oh, man, so much cheese. So this is it. This is really it for our Fargo coverage of season two. We won't be back anytime soon because we got to wait for the snow. But thanks so much for listening, and you can follow us on Twitter. We'll be keeping our ears to the ground, and we'll let you know as soon as there is any exciting news about season three or other developments. Fargo has been nominated for numerous awards, so you're going to see a lot in the news as they start to rack up those statues. Nice. Audgees is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Bye now.